Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. And welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly look at the royal family brought to you from Mail Plus HQ in Kensington. I'm Joe Elvin. And now last year, the Mail on Sunday lost a privacy judgment in the High Court over the publication of a letter from Meghan Markle to her father. As we record this program, the Court of Appeal is listening to a challenge from lawyers for the newspaper who have provided new evidence for the judges to consider in an attempt to overturn the ruling. Sam Greenhill is the Daily Mail's chief reporter, and here he is with the latest on that story. Well, the Duchess of Sussex has apologised to judges at the Appeal Court in London. This is to do with Finding Freedom, the biography of Harry and Meghan. And Meghan has previously strenuously denied to the court that she collaborated with the authors to feed them a favourable version of her life story. Now she says she's sorry she forgot that she did provide some assistance. And the court was shown a two-page briefing note that uh, Meghan had written. It contained insights about her family and the Queen. And she sent it to one of her royal aides to use to brief the authors of this book. Uh, Meghan uh, told the court that she'd failed to remember that she'd produced this briefing note and apologised to the judges. And she said it was never her intention to mislead the court. Now, this is all to do with the long-running court case over a handwritten letter that Meghan sent her father, Thomas Markle, after the royal wedding of 2018. In 2019, the Mail on Sunday published extracts. Meghan said it was a private letter and she sued the newspaper at the High Court and won. Uh, the newspaper is now appealing. And what the newspaper argues is that Meghan was content to share private details with the authors of the biography and also knew that the letter to her father could be made public. The court heard from Jason Knauf. He's the former press secretary at Kensington Palace. And he said the Duchess did know the letter could be made public. And he said that she had deliberately addressed her father as daddy because, in her words, this would pull at the heartstrings of the public if the letter did leak. Now, the Duchess's position is that even if she feared the letter might leak, she never wanted it to, the letter was private and the newspaper had no business in making it public. And the case continues. And it's another busy week for Royal News. And here's the Daily Mail's Royal Editor, Rebecca English, to bring us up to speed on Skype. Rebecca, lots to talk about, but I hear you've rushed back from a royal engagement to be here. Why don't you tell us who you were with? Morning. And yes, I have. So a bit windswept today because I have hot-footed it back from Brixton where I was with the Prince of Wales. He was at the local NatWest Bank branch where he was meeting young entrepreneurs who've been helped by his Prince's Trust. And uh, there was a really warm welcome from him, for him out on the streets. And inside, uh, there was a great moment where one of these entrepreneurs, a guy called Chris Wall, a.k.a. 
Chris Reed's mind, and he did a magic trick for Charles. And hopefully you might be able to see some footage I took on my mobile phone of that moment. Um, uh, everybody I met there was really grateful to meet the Prince, but of course they all said to me they wouldn't be where they are now without the help of his incredible Prince's Trust. Mm. Well, Rebecca, we've got so much to talk about today, particularly about some comments from Harry from this week. But let's start with some good news, at least. As you alluded to last week, the Queen seems to be on the men and planning to be at the Cenotaph on Sunday. Absolutely. And I'm sorry I had to be a bit cryptic last week, but for reasons of confidence, I couldn't say what I knew she was doing. But yeah, she flew to Sandringham for a couple of days. And there's actually a really sweet story associated with this that... Every year while she was married to the Duke of Edinburgh, around Halloween, they would go to Sandringham for a week away together. And she was really keen to maintain that tradition for the first time after she lost him. So that's why she went there. She flew there and back. She was obviously well enough to do that. And I'm told that unless there is a dramatic change, and it would have to be a pretty dramatic change in her condition, she absolutely intends to be at the Cenotaph on Sunday. And Kate, Duchess of Cambridge was out yesterday. What can you tell us about that? That was another really moving event, I have to say. I was with her. She was at the Imperial War Museum where they were uh, officially opening their new World War II and Holocaust galleries. And she was reunited with two Holocaust survivors that last year she photographed for a memorial project. And she was reunited with them again and they saw the pictures she took of them on the wall. She gave them a really big hug and talked about what a profound impact that whole experience had had on them. Uh, and, you know, it never ceases to amaze you when you listen to these people's stories, you know, how much we still have to learn from them. And uh, that was a point she wanted to make too. Yeah, and last year we had a photo opportunity from Harry, didn't we, on Remembrance Day. What do you think he will be doing to mark the day this year? Well, funny you should say that. He was actually out in New York with Meghan last night in an event to honour the military in the US. And he did make a point of talking about his pride of the military in the UK as well and the kind of close cooperation between the two countries. Uh, he couldn't wear his uniform, of course, but he did wear the medals that he was entitled to. Um, and obviously, I, I'm sure there was an aspect of him making a point because he obviously has been cut out of the royal family's official role in remembrance events in the UK. Now, it wouldn't be Harry um, if Harry wasn't causing a stir with some comments he made when he was on a panel talking about the internet this week. What can you tell us? Yeah, this was pretty fascinating. So he was taking part in this rewired event about internet lies and internet misinformation, which of course is a really important subject. But of course, Harry just can't help himself. And it turned into one of his kind of really quite kind of boringly predictable and pedestrian kind of diatribes about the media. I mean, there were some brilliantly kind of chosen choice phrases thrown in. He described kind of reporters like me as pirates with press passes which i thought was quite amusing but unfortunately kind of went off topic and actually i think there's a really really important subject he was there to discuss i think i'd like to see you in an eye patch actually rebecca i think that'd be quite quite fetching why do you think what what makes harry an expert on this subject that's what fascinates me well it's a sixty-four thousand dollar question isn't it what does make him an expert but to be fair he is someone who has grown up in a really unique position and has you know has had many dealings with the media over the years so i suppose in that respect he's much of or maybe more of an expert than than, than a lot of people but as i say i think unfortunately his his personal prejudices 
tend to enter into what he's doing, which actually is, as I said before, a really, really important subject of discussion. And do you uh, buy the idea that he's happy? Uh, see, last night again, he was saying that he's, quote unquote, living the American dream. Yeah, I think we're talking about riding a car shaped like a like a hot dog and saying, you know, he. <laughs> that is a dream. You really can't yeah. get more, yeah, more American than that. But look, you know, I I worked with him for many years, and just just by the look of his on his face and his demeanour, he clearly is a lot happier in the US with what he's doing there than what he was doing here. And good luck to him. It's just I think the constant jabs and the constant barbs, which which kind of get people's backs up. Mm. Weather's nice there, though, isn't it? Let's bring in my panel now. And this week, the Daily Mail's diary editor, Richard Eden, will be crossing swords with an old adversary, <laughs> historian Dr. Tessa Dunlop. Welcome both. I, just, I don't want to get in the middle of anything here. Now, Richard, some very strong words from Harry this week, hitting out at social media companies and the pirates of the media. I, I don't have a press pass, so I think I'm not a pirate. But um, what did you make of all of that? Um, I mean, as always with Harry and Meghan, they sort of say things which leave you very confused afterwards. I mean, they used to be such keen fans of social media. I mean, Meghan really sort of made her name through her lifestyle blog and her regular Instagram posts of bananas and, you know, all hints about her relationship with Harry and this type of thing. And then when they had Sussex Royal, they were always posting on Instagram and, and Twitter. But since the Queen banned them from using the royal title and they had to stop using that, they became very less keen. And now Harry's, you know, really sort of virulently criticising um, social media. Um, but I do kind of wonder why. I mean, is it because you don't get paid on social media? Because every other medium they've signed up with, whether it be Spotify or Netflix, pays them a fortune. I mean, perhaps they're a little <coughs> bit resentful that they can't make any money via social media. That's taking cynical to a whole new level, if you don't mind me saying <laughs> Here so. Here we go. No, but social media drives interest in other projects. I mean, it's a feeder into money pots. Lots of people do get paid to advertise on Instagram, but I guess yes. they're not allowed to do that. Uh, but in relation to Harry and Meghan, and this torturous kind of toing and froing with social media. Yeah, I agree. They need to step back. They're clearly spending way too long scrolling. And I'm telling you, even after our little episode of Palace Confidential, I've learned not to look some of the time. <laughs> Richard, you seem to have people backing you more than me. You are William and I am Harry in terms of the popularity stakes here. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, yeah, w we all have to learn to manage this. And I think children growing up today will be a great deal uh, tougher, more media savvy. And Harry, if you look at his childhood, is informed by real pain because there was no social media in Diana's day, but there was media. And I think what he sees is a snowball effect of what killed his mother and has subsequently, despite all his best efforts, grown even bigger because of social media. And I think that's at the heart of it. I mean, he claimed as well, this is, I'm fascinated by this, to have predicted the riots on Capitol Hill from January but, this oh, come year. come on, didn't in, we all but, predict them? But that's what, and his warnings were ignored by Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter. What, what do you make of that? Do you know how did he, has he explained how he predicted it? But first, Jack Dorsey ignores me too. I mean, it's weird, right? <laughs> it's yeah. Weird. Well, yeah. there wasn't it from, he was sort of suggesting it was from his monitoring of social media but they but previously we're all said doing that. It, it's mm. basically does that mean he was reading Donald Trump's tweets as well, far no, as they, I, pre they previously said they're boycotting social media yeah so I, I <laughs> yeah it, sometimes it seems it's quite hard to keep up with yeah. his stories 
I think, yeah, it's weird. There does seem to be an ambiguity around some of his messaging. And interestingly, Harry, I mean, I'm kind of fond of him on one level, but he's not the sharpest knife in the box. I mean, I struggle to get my head around the First Amendment, for goodness sake. And I, I think perhaps he could be better advised to steer clear of big issues like the First Amendment in relation to social media. But he has pointed to a wound in the way in which Britain and America, um, you know, uh, have transactions between the press and the public. Yes, we believe in freedom of speech, but it has massive pit holes and those have got bigger with social media. We've hollowed out our debate and that needs to be addressed. We have, Richard, don't look like that. What do you mean you don't believe me? Well, the traditional media also came in for a hammering as, you know, one would predict from Prince Harry. He was complaining about us being pirates with press cards. Yeah, pirates with press cards. Is that how you see yourself? It's, 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 Swashbuckling it's a, through <laughs> the society parties of London. It's a good image to be fair, but, but I mean, Harry and Meghan, you know, they love journalists, but they only love them when they're sycophants or cheerleaders who are happy to say exactly what they've been spoon-fed. Um, so, you know, I, I find it very hard to accept. I mean, you know, he's moved to the home of free speech in America. And they do often give the impression that they'd rather be living in a sort of communist regime where, um, you know, what's said about important people is dictated by, by them. So, no, it's, it's all um, very strange, I think. I think it's disingenuous of you to be quite so kind of, it simply doesn't make any sense. I mean, if we look at, for instance, Mexit, he had a bit of a rant about Mexit being this misogynist term uh, that came from Twitter and was upscaled by pirates with press passes who write diary columns, perhaps. And um, I have think... You, have you written many column inches about Mexit, Richard? Well, I think Mexit is a fun term. You know, we deal in popular journalism and... Well, fun's for you, seems Richard. Megan you know, she exited Britain. Mexit seems like a straightforward but I guess I guess Harry's point is that he was the more the architect of the exit, more of a hexit than a mexit. But she became like this Yoko Ono figure of blame. But I think anyone who loves the language would say that mexit's got a better ring to it than uh, hexit. You know, and hexit is all rather strange. Harry also said, Richard, that Harry, he wants social media to allow everyone who can come to these communities and be welcome no matter who they are, what they represent and what their beliefs are. Is that... that's. Not unreasonable, isn't it? No, I think that's, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say that anyone would. Um, you know, and social media's um, got its problems, but I'm just not sure that Harry and Meghan are the best place, um, the best people there to be lecturing us on misinformation. You know, it's hard to keep a straight face. I mean, we just, you know, we look back to the Oprah Winfrey interview with its catalogue of exaggerations and mistruths mm. um, and and here they are lecturing us I think I, it's I, very I awkward. I think you can pull back on the word lecturing you don't use that word when William speaks or when Charles speaks and yet you always say Harry's lecturing he's just saying what he thinks I didn't take it as a lecture I mean half the time to be honest when he's uh, off piste I, I'm not really listening to him and that that's probably healthier just let him have his little moment his little redhead moment in America and he, uh, hopefully he'll come back down to earth. But it is literally a lecture. You know, he's at this conference on misinformation and he's the <laughs> sort of the guest speaker. You know, th that's the thing. I mean, at least we've criticised on this programme, um, you know, William or Charles, if they've been sort of lecturing on the environment and um, that type of thing. So here it is, Harry on... Well um, free speech. But let's move on to um, this Netflix drama. There's drama on screen and off screen where Netflix is concerned. Moving on to another story that affects Harry is the news that Jemima Khan 
has asked for her contributions to the next series of The Crown to be removed. She was apparently, you know, helping to write the story of the late Diana, Princess of Wales, for the new series, and who was a friend of hers. But if Jemima's not happy, that surely puts Harry in a rather uncomfortable position in terms of his Netflix deals. I think it really does. I mean, this is really interesting. You know, Jemima Goldsmith was a close friend of uh, Princess Diana, and she knew her well, and she was keen that, you know, she, she works in um, TV production herself, and she was keen to make sure that um, The Crown provided a fair portrayal of, of her friend. So she became involved in it, um, and I think she's become very disillusioned very quickly at the path the programme's taken. Now, with Harry and Meghan, they've signed this very lucrative deal with Netflix, and then they're in a difficult position. Remember, we had Harry defending the crown on when he was interviewed by James Corden, talking about, actually, you know, it's quite realistic. So he is um, doing what his paymasters want him to, and I think that's very uncomfortable. Does Jemima's stepping back from it suggest that, actually, they're, they're, they're writing a fairy tale? They're not... It, it's, it's not... The, the, the historical record that a lot of people, particularly in America, think that I think it, it is. does. I think they're not yeah. interested in a yeah. historical portrayal. They want sensation. I was led to believe there were other reasons for Jemima stepping back from the crown, like her little relationship with one of the series creators had hit the rails, and therefore, and she sort of used uh, the fig leaf of not Tessie approving. cynic. I, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I, I'm merely suggesting that there may be other reasons for mm. Jemima calling time on her relationship with the Crown. I mean, it's important we put all the cards on the table. Uh, I can't believe it's just because she's now very late in the day questioning the integrity of the script. The script has never been on track if accuracy is what you're looking for. And, mm. and, and she knows that. You only have to watch past series. You don't have to be a historian, guess what, to know that a lot of uh, the misinformation in The Crown is actually part of entertainment. And I think there is an issue for Harry because huge numbers of those who enjoy and watch The Crown seem to take it as, as, as the truth. I mean, and that's where he falls over. And that's why he's got to, I think, stop talking about, you know, misinformation because he has got his fingers in the till. But, you know, it's become more more and more raw as the series has got closer to the present day well, so that the series they're filming you know they will lead up to diana's death they will be about the son's reaction are they also touching on the sensitive martin bashir yes topic? that, that yeah. will appear in yeah. this next series and this is you know for example prince william has been very strong and harry but mm. in terms of martin bashir and the what went on to try and get this interview and now this is going to be served up as um, Actually, entertainment harry wasn't as strong on the no. on the martin bashir interview william said he wanted it mothballed to be got rid of removed mm. from public view harry dissembled on that point mm. he very much i think still feels that his mother's voice needs to be remembered and heard so to be fair to harry i think he feels a great deal less strong about the portrayal of diana in the crown because remember it attacks the royal family which ultimately doesn't it whenever we get sympathetic portrayal of diana it's bad for the royal family and harry has left well, perhaps before his next speech about misinformation, you know, he might want to say, I've spoken to my employers at Netflix and I've asked them to um, treat my family more honestly in, in well, their lucrative drama. Let's watch this space. Well, I will be watching Fact or Fiction. Can't wait. Let's move on now. And we're recording this on Remembrance Day, a topic close to the royal family's heart. The Queen herself served as a young woman in the Second World War effort, joining the Auxiliary Territorial Service. We spoke to one former veteran, Barbara Wetherill, who did the same training as Her Majesty. 
I'm Barbara Mary Wetherill. I'm 96 years old and I served during the war, World War II, in the Auxiliary Territorial Service. I was 17 when I joined and an only child, I'd had a lovely upbringing. I just wanted something a little bit more exciting, I think, than what I was doing. I met with opposition, of course, from my parents being an only child and a girl at that. Um, but uh, mother had served in the First World War in the army, so she really hadn't any any defence <laughs> other than to say, yes, you can go. It was almost my ambition to become a driver, if possible, because I thought it would be uh, something exciting to do and it would be learning a skill as well, because we didn't have a car at home. Very few people did in those days. So uh, I was really looking forward to being able to do my bit as a driver. The training was very thorough. It was extensive, intensive, <laughs> and the very first day, I always remember a chubby little sergeant addressing all of us and saying, you drive with your hands and your feet and the seat of your pants. <laughs> I always remember that. And she was right. You learned to feel those vehicles. You became part of them. They were part of you. Princess Elizabeth, it wasn't mentioned then because she hadn't done it. It was three years later that uh, she arrived at Camberley. So it was uh, towards the end of the war before she joined up. And then, of course, you know, the news spread that the, the princess had joined the ATS. She wouldn't be doing uh, fatigues, she wouldn't be doing camp maintenance, she wouldn't be cleaning the ablution blocks, she wouldn't be doing guard duties, anything like that. She was there purely as a front. I felt a little bit sorry when I learned about her, her army service because she must have felt a bit like a fish out of water, poor lass. You know, knowing that she had to sort of <laughs> be a symbol in a way. And I think it was um, arranged that she would do this and the king and queen would come to visit and whatnot, that it was a morale booster for the general public. I'm proud of what she did, no doubt she is too. And I think she would probably have loved to have done exactly what I did and done the full Monty. But um, that's the way things were. I mean, she was protected. I must admit, I feel proud in a way of had the honour to serve and do what I did. It was only a little bit. I mean, I didn't win the war all by myself. There were millions of others because during the war at one, uh, it was after Dunkirk actually, Churchill made a stirring speech and he said, let the women come forward. Well, he must have got a heck of a shock because 7,200,000 women did just that. And we actually outnumbered the men in the war effort. There were more women involved in the war effort than men. And on the gun sites, there were more women than men. We outnumbered the men. <laughs> so I feel proud of being able to join with my fellow women and helping. You know, because whatever we did, however little, it was a little bit towards victory.
Barbara, telling it like it is there. <laughs> I loved her. Now, Barbara is one of the subjects of Dr. Tessa Dunlop's new book, Army Girls. Tessa, the Queen really didn't have to serve at all, did she? But she wanted to. No, she did. And what's really interesting about the Queen's wartime narrative is it mirrored almost every other girl at that time. Girls were stuck at home in the domestic sphere. In 1939, war breaks out. Most of the likes of Barbara, who's nine months older than the Queen, these women are the last people on the planet who sort of patronise Her Majesty. Oh, bless her. <laughs> it's really surreal. I feel sorry for her. Yeah. <laughs> but in, it, this was a man's war. You know, women's own were like, stay at your post, girls, stay with the kitchen sink, the boys will be back. And actually, of course, we're up to our waist by 1941, you've got to rewrite the script. And it's a game of catch-up. But young girls, teenage girls, are like, we want to get out there and see a slice of the action. And it's parents and politicians who are terrified, putting a young woman in uniform, heaven help us. And of course, among the old stiffs was the king. George VI, he didn't believe in young women in uniform. Good heavens, in fact, the Queen's nanny, Crawfy, she wanted to go into the Wrens, which was sort of elite service, and he said, no, you'll just be serving some old admiral his breakfast, stay here. And she did. And of course, the pressure builds, because the narrative changed. You can script women 80 years ago next month, they suddenly, all women between 20 and 30, are drafted into a service of sorts. And the princess coming of age, she's 17, then she's 18, she's like, let me out of Windsor. What, what do you think mm. that, I mean, you know, the whole war effort obviously redefined women's role in yeah. society. Do you think that had a direct impact on the public accepting a queen for the first time in who knows how many years? I think it's really interesting because although that generation, including the Queen, who finally gets her way, like, conveniently two months before the end of the war and, and signs up. Um, actually, all the women who served are very much put back in their box. Late 40s, 50s is hugely conventional period in British history. Um, and I think in terms of the Queen, it's a titular and it's constitutional. She's still standing by her man, Philip. And remember, we have no choice. And actually, Victoria wasn't so far out of the public memory. It seems a long way off now, but it was sort of half a century earlier yeah. that we'd had one of the most significant uh, monarchs in Britain's history. I think what's really interesting is that the Queen's generation gave birth to what are known as the bra burners, mm. the feminists, including the Queen. You know, she had a daughter. She, th this was a, a new era. And these women, including the Queen, are time travellers. They're the beginning of the most extraordinary journey of liberation. People say, oh, the women got the vote at the end of World War I, but not really that much changed. It's under her reign, Elizabeth II's reign, where we've seen a transformation. And also mm. with the Queen, obviously, recently we've seen her determined yeah. to get back to work after being ill and, you know, all the things we've discussed that she's been through, the, her grieving period, yeah. all the problems with Andrew. Did you see that kind of spirit in the women that you interviewed for this book? Is that, is that a generational trait? I think for those who are still alive, remember we're now talking about extraordinary outliers. Women, the Queen's age and older, still with it, still engaged. But funnily enough, Joyce, one of the women in my book who was, who was a driver, her husband died almost at the same time as Philip. Mm. And she's so engaged. She was out last night talking about her war story. And they are an example to us. If you want to live a long time, 
stay engaged, stay relevant. And it's our duty, I think, to our elders to help them stay relevant. And the Queen is, is great like that. Isn't You're going to try and stay relevant, Richard. <laughs> I'll try, I'll try. Now, the military, obviously, we talk about it a lot. Yeah. It's so synonymous with the royal mm. family. It's such an important part of their lifeblood. Do you think that will continue after the Queen's reign? I hope it will. I mean, you could argue the whole point of the royal family through the ages has been to lead us into battle, you know, and to represent us from, from the front. Um, and the royal family has always been keen to continue that. So I would have thought Prince George will be encouraged to um, sign up just as Prince wow. Harry and William did. Packing George off to the military. How old is he now? He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic already. Yeah. Well, not too long yeah. before he can join the cadets, you know. Yeah. Um, and perhaps. What about um, Charlotte? Princess Get Charlotte, the pick. too. Yes. Yeah, my daughter's an, a keen air cadet, you know. Maybe um, Princess Charlotte will join her. Were you sad? Were you sad about Harry's, you know, that he was there doing Vets Day in America? He's our, probably our most significant engaged royal in terms of military did 10 years two tours in Afghanistan. Well I think the saddest thing for Harry of, of everything was leaving those military ties mm. and I think he, he was very clear about that and mm. it has been a shame but that was inevitable when they quit royal duties unfortunately. Well to hear more from Barbara and some other fascinating women who served check out Tessa's book which is called Army Girls the secrets and stories of military service from the final few women who fought in World War II published by Headline and out now. That is all we have time for this week on Palace Confidential. I know I'm sorry, heartbreaking, heartbreaking as ever, but my thanks to Rebecca English, Sam Greenhill, Richard Eden, and author extraordinaire, Dr. Tessa Dunlop. And never forgetting thanks to you for watching. We will see you next week. Goodbye.